Good morning, everyone. I hope uh, you've, had, you've been blessed so far this morning. Uh, it's, it's in so many ways, it's kind of a, a very appropriate morning in the sense of a dark, dreary morning, um, actually kind of being sparse because we're actually ironically at the climax of the gospel of Mark, the Mark's the, you know, the first biography of Jesus's ministry. And we're, we're at the, the climax, the, the, the peak of his gospel. And it really is ironically, you would never expect to finish a story this way. And thankfully, he doesn't. And in and, and many ways, what we're looking at is, um, well, just the, the coronation of a king. And, and we've been in this series that, that Jesus is a different kind of king. So we shouldn't be shocked that his coronation is dramatically different than any and every other king. So you think about a coronation of a king. You know, the, the, the pomp, the circumstance, the cheering, the regalia, all this, it's a magnificent day. It's been lots of planning and effort has gone into this. And, and it, it, should just, it should bring lots of people joy, I'm assuming, as an American, not really. But I'm assuming here, lots and lots of joy. Um, and I'm just going to do this because I'm going to walk in front of it and it's going to kill my eyes. Um, so, it, you know, just really excited. But this coronation is completely different. It's, it's full of irony, and we'll see that it's rich and thick with irony. It's full of agony. And, and, and just think of the irony and agony. It's, the irony is supposed to, to make the listener be, feel the irony and feel the agony of this moment. Not just the, the, the pain that Jesus goes through, but just the, the irony of look at what's happening to him. We know what's true about him, and look what's happening. It can't be happening. And then it's full of mockery. People scoffing at him, as we read, you know, as we were saying, you know, the mocking. And the irony that his last breath leads to our life. It's just, there's so much in it. And it, it really does, it really, you know, Good Friday, even though we're talking about it on Sunday, which I think we talk about on Sunday, because so often it's kind of just given a few moments on Fridays. We want to really dwell in the, the, the beauty and the wonder of the irony and the agony of Good Friday. And this Friday, April 3rd, uh, is the 1,982nd anniversary of April 3rd, 33 AD. So Jesus died on April 3rd, 33 AD. I had to do this. I'm a historian. I had to do this. Because it's happening on April 3rd this year. It's amazing. Um, but that day is really the most important day for Christians. It really is. And just like last week, we saw that Christianity shouldn't be based on Christians, but based on Christ, that, uh, that he's a different kind of leader, that it's, it, you know, the followers are wishy-washy, full of hypocrisy, all these kinds of things, but Christ came to lead and to give his life to be a ransom for many, and he is the basis for what Christianity is, should be about. And today, the mo- we're talking about the basis for the most, imp- well, Christianity. The fact is that this king went to, and died on the cross. And, and yes, Easter is important, Without all the truths and the depth, the, the, the beauty of the cross, really, it wouldn't mean anything unless he rose again from the dead. And so, yeah, we celebrate on Easter, and it's a big, important day, but the only reason why Friday is good is because he rose from the dead. But Friday is so important, or this Sunday is so important. So, because he, he defeats death, and we get life, but really, I kind of get way ahead of myself, as usual. So, we're going to be in Mark 15, uh, page 842 of the Church Bibles. And what we're going to see is, again, the coronation of a different kind of king. 
And Mark tells a story in, in, in kind of a fast-paced um, way. And it, it, it's, it's very, well, it's kind of like, you ever been like, seen a movie or, or something like that where someone kind of like their, their vision, the periphery kind of goes all blurry and just focused on one thing. It kind of has bottle vision. And Mark tells a story that we have kind of this bottle vision focus on Jesus. And all the sound is muffled as well. Mark only wants us to hear certain things. So he places a story and tells, or he places this story in the historical event of Christ's crucifixion. And there's lots of things that happen. But Mark leaves them out on purpose in order to focus on Christ who's going to the cross. The coronation of a king and the nature of it. So, so many things are muffled out. Jesus only speaks twice. We don't hear mourning or anything like that. We just hear, all we see is mockery. And it's, it's for the purpose of, maybe we should be asking, instead of kind of trying to fill in all the gaps, but maybe asking, why is Mark telling the story the way that he is? What, what is he doing? What is he saying? What, why is he saying it this way? Why is he telling it this way? So that we can feel his intention. That, really, that's the, the big idea in some ways of this, of this talk this morning is what is the purpose of Mark telling the story this way? Because I think it really draws us to what Mark wants us to say and what Mark wants us to think or what Mark wants us to ask. But there's many things that kind of get in the way of that very thing. Um, so first, the first thing that I think of that we could get in the way of really um, feeling and seeing what Mark is trying to say in the gospel is the fact is that you doubt that Jesus died on the cross. That it's not that big of a deal. I'm only here because mom, dad dragged me here, or I'm here because that's what we're supposed to do. You come to church on Sunday. But the whole cross thing, it's not that big of a deal. I, you know, I don't even know if it really happened. And, and me, the historian, I want to jump in and say, okay, actually, the, the day of, of the cross, we had not only have first-hand accounts, we have outside hostile accounts of this happening. I can tell you about Pilate, who no, people didn't think existed for a long time. We have historical things that prove that he, he was actually there and when he, when he ruled and all these other things. I can tell you about the, the tensions that he was feeling, the tensions of Caiaphas, who nobody thought Caiaphas, the high priest, existed until we found his bone box in 1990 that proves that he exists. So I can do all these things, but that's not the point because now... I'm distracted from what Mark is trying to do. I I think we should see and feel what Mark is trying to say. We can get into the theology of the cross. It's very important. Jesus died for our sins. He came to bring us life. That's really important, but we could get distracted by that and not see what Mark is trying to tell, how Mark is trying to tell the story. Um, We could also kind of get into the goriness of the, the cross, but in some ways, that's kind of just manipulating us to feel something, to feel the agony. But Mark jumps right over that because his listeners would have known exactly what that was like. So we don't need to get all that. So what we need to focus on is maybe asking the question, why is Mark telling it this way? And what is so important about the coronation of the king and the irony of him going to the cross? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for the church? What does that mean for the world? Okay. So let's jump right into the text, Mark 15. And what I want to, before I say anything, I just want to say there's three major sections in this. So there's three things that happen to Jesus. There's a trial, there's a crucifixion, and there's a death. And then there's three responses to each of those events. And Mark in this section loves threes, okay? So there's three predictions to Jesus' passion, right? The, the day of, that he was going to die. He predicts that three times in 8, 9, and 10. He talks about three different times 
the 6th hour, the ninth hour, the 12th hour, 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., and there's three-hour uh, blocks. So he's really into threes. There's three witnesses at the end of everything that happened. But so he's really telling a story for us to feel. He's telling us the historical account or historical event in such a way that it will elicit a response. So we're going to look at the first section, the first, the trial of Jesus and the first response to Jesus, starting in Mark 15, 1. So as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a, cons- a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? So how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. So there's actually two trials that take place in this little paragraph. The first one is, uh, kind of a daylight early morning where the council or what they often called the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of the, the, Israel, the, well, the nation of Israel, they come together and they kind of affirm the kangaroo trial they had in the evening. And they do it for two reasons. The first reason is that they know that Pilate had, does all his uh, trial work and all his major you know, governmental work in the morning because it gets warm in the afternoon and he's, a, he's an elite and he, they rest in the afternoon. So this is what the Romans always did. They did their trials and everything early in the morning, in the cool of the day. So they know they have to get this done. Also, they do it at night because they, they're, well, they, in order to be prepared to kind of confirm it in the morning. So they're not allowed to do capital uh, trials in the evening. This is, again, against their, their laws. And so they do it early in the morning, and they have to confirm what they found Jesus guilty of in the evening. And what we saw last week is they couldn't really bring anything. They couldn't, they could, nothing ever stick, stuck on Jesus. And finally, Caiaphas, the inquisitor, the high priest, says, just directly asked Jesus, are you, in 1461, are you the high priest, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed one? Are you the son of God? But he doesn't say that. And Jesus says, I am. I am this, I'm the son of man seated at the right hand of power, coming with clouds of heaven. They, and they react, oh, blasphemy, he's claiming to be God. We got him, and now we're going to take him. But it, do you notice what they're accusing Jesus of to Pilate? Are you the king of the Jews? They're, they're accusing Pilate, or they're accusing Jesus of insurrection to Pilate. Because Pilate wouldn't have given a rip about blasphemy. But insurrection, I have to take that very seriously. And I think that the second reason why they bring it to Pilate in the morning is because they want Pilate, the Roman, to kill Jesus. They don't want to kill Jesus. If they were going to kill Jesus, they'd have stoned him, like they stoned Stephen and Acts. They're taking, they're taking Jesus to Pilate because the, all the crowds, the Galileans are, uh, that are out, outside the city walls, they're all pro-Jesus. You know, they're, they're praising him as they were coming in. They're over on the other side of the city in the walls, with their, their crowd, their employees. And, and so if they kill Jesus, this crowd is going to be against the chief priests. But they already kind of have animosity towards the Romans. So the chief priest goes, let's use the Romans. And then we get rid of Jesus, and nobody's mad at us. It works. So they take Pilate this, and they say, hey, Pilate, this guy is guilty of insurrection. And so Pilate begins the trial in verse 2 and asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you said it. You got it right. I'm the king of the Jews. And so then all these charges come, and they bring all the witnesses, and the witnesses, like before, there's not, nothing really sticks. You know, uh, 
You know, he opposed paying taxes to Caesar. He's subverting you. He said bad things about the Romans. He's talked about tearing down the temple, all these kinds of things. And nothing really sticks. And so Pilate goes, so you have, do you have any answers to this? Do you have any defense to this? And Jesus, again, is silent because the, one, the first time he speaks in this whole chapter is he says, I am the king. That's all that Jesus says, I am the king. And here, he's quiet. And this amazes Pilate because if you think about any time that someone's probably come before Pilate, who's innocent, they make it really clear that they're innocent. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I didn't do this. Uh, I didn't do this. Look at this doesn't fit. This doesn't fit. This doesn't fit. I should be off. Let me go. Jesus, as we saw last week, is determined to go to the cross. He could defend himself. He could clearly have said, now this sticks. I'm okay with Rome. You know, you pay your taxes to Caesar. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You give to God what is God's. He could have got out of this really easy, really quickly. And Pilate is amazed by this. There's something different. And we could go into all the other gospels and give all the reasons why Pilate is amazed. But I think it's just there's something different about Pilate for the Mark story. He's amazed by the fact that Jesus is remaining quiet and seems to be determined to go to the cross. And then the story continues. So what we, really, what we see in this section, really, 1 through 15, is the guiltless Jesus being handed over to be crucified out of convenience, for the convenience of the, the chief priest, we'll see the convenience for Pilate, and out of envy. So now at the feast, in verse 6, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the, in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd get, came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd, their employees, to have him release uh, for them Barabbas instead. And uh, let's just stop there for a second. So this is supposed to be really filled with all kinds of irony, okay? Just really thick with this. So Barabbas is guilty of insurrection. Raising up a a revolt against the Romans. He's killed people. He's led this out. And and he's, he's guilty of this. And he deserves death on the cross. You have the other person is Jesus of Nazareth, who is being accused of insurrection, but is clearly not guilty of it. And he is, they're asking for him to go to the cross, we'll see. So there's, there, there's a little bit of irony. The other is Barabbas. Uh, it could be, it, his name could mean Bar, which is son. Abba, Abba, father. Son of the father. And you look at the Gospel of Matthew, his first name is Jesus. Jesus Barabbas. So Jesus, the son of the father. And now you have the true son of the father, who's truly Jesus, who isn't guilty, and they're going, uh, we want Barabbas to be released, who we're accusing of insurrection. And what we'll see is they want the person who isn't guilty of insurrection to die. See, and Mark is telling it this way for us to go, no, you can't do this. Don't do that. No, 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 this is wrong. You got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. This not, that's not the right guy. You should release the other guy. And so Pilate, in verse 12, said to them, then what shall I do with this man that you call this king of the Jews? Because he's clearly not guilty. And so what is the, the, they cried out, crucify him. And then Pilate says, well, what evil has he done? He's not guilty. But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. You can just hear it. As 
the chief priest probably leading this, crucify him, and they're stirring up the crowd like they have before. And they're in Herod's temple, which probably, or Herod's palace, excuse me, which is in the north uh, west of the, the temple. So it's early in the morning. Remember all the Galileans are eating their, their, their breakfast? They have no idea what's going on to Jesus. And now here you have a small group of Jews, 400, but a small group compared to everybody else in the city, the 250,000 that are there, screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so you can imagine what Pilate's feeling. There's a lot of people who really want this guy to be dead. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, the insurrectionist, and had Jesus scourged. And in having Jesus scourged, he delivered him over to be crucified. So let's just, let's just think about this. So the convenience for Pilate. He, we won't go on the details, but he's got lots of issues with the chief priest. There's been lots of occasions where there's been revolts and he hasn't handled them all that well. And his, his boss, the emperor, kind of knows about it and has already threatened him. If there's anything that goes bad, Pilate, you're out. And it's not just mean you lose your position. Most likely you lose your life. And Tiberius at this time, the Caesar, has gone a little bit loco. It's, they actually call him the, the reign of terror at this point. Okay? That he does not want to cause any issues. And so out of envy, the chief priests are getting, putting all this pressure on Pilate. And what's the envy? Remember in chapter 9, Jesus actually tells a story and says, hey, you chief priest, he tells it through a parable, you chief priest, you're going to kill me because you want my stuff. You want the inheritance. You want the people of Israel. You want your power. You want your leadership. You want your position. You want everything, but you don't want the beloved son of the father. And you're going to kill him and throw him outside of the city. And it's out of envy. They want what Jesus wants. And Pilate senses that. And so out of convenience and out of envy, Jesus is handed over to be crucified, both by the Jews and both by Pilate the Roman. Both are guilty. Gentile and Jew are guilty of handing Jesus over to be crucified. Just as as Jesus had predicted three times that he would be handed over by the chief priests and scribes over to the Gentiles and they would hand him over and deliver him over to be crucified. So there's not a guilt, everyone's guilty of handing Jesus over. So this is the trial of Jesus. And now we're going to look at the response. And this is where Jesus, from 16 to 20, is the coronation. And his coronation, his, the crowning of this king, is met with mockery and abuse. So there's a trial, and here's the response. The soldiers are let, uh, take Jesus into the headquarters of the palace, and there's 600 of them, the whole battalion, in verse 16. And they clothe him in regalia. They clothe him in a purple cloth, probably just a rag, like something that's handed over. They, they crown him with a, a, a crown of thorns, that, you know, you know, like, you know, a typical uh, picture of like a Roman or a, a Greek with a, like kind of the Greek, like cr- green crown. That actually victors, they'd give them gold leaflet crowns. You can see at the British Museum, there's still like these really thin pieces of gold leaf. So they're amazing. And they were given to victors. They're like a Caesar, if he conquered, he would have come back into Israel or come back to Rome. And he would have, they would have this great parade. And they would say, hail Caesar, victor, emperor. Right? And so here, they're mocking Jesus. He's wearing purple like a Caesar would wear. He's got a crown like a Caesar would have. And what are, they, what are they saying to him? They're saying, Hail, King of the Jews. These Romans who are probably uh, Roman and you know, all kinds of different backgrounds, nations, even maybe Samaritan. 
And they're, they're mocking him. This is pure sarcasm. This is ridiculous. Blood probably coming down, you know, thorns being pushed into your scalp. Blooding, uh, excuse me, blood everywhere. And it's just, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible, ironic, agonizing event where mockery is taking place. They're spitting at him. They're punching him. They're kneeling before him. It's just this, this, this coronation of the king is beginning with mockery. And there they strip, then they finally strip him of his clothes. You think of the blood, the blood and all those kinds of things that took place. Because I, I skipped over it, but the scourging, uh, just to mention, is that they, everybody reading this or the first heard it would have known exactly what would have happened. That there's two men with whips that have like, there's extra strings, you know, like ten strings of leather. And they would have bones and nails and things in them. And they would alternate as they whip this person in front of everybody, naked. And the, the nails, you know, if you like, you know, if you've seen the Passion movie, like they slapped a, the whip on the table, it would rip wood out of the table. It's just, it, most people didn't survive, well, a lot of people didn't survive the flogging before they went to the cross, which is what they always did. They flogged them, and then they went to the cross. So here's Jesus bleeding. He's put, uh, they put a purple robe on him, and now they're taking it off. You can imagine the pain and the agony of blood, you know, stopping, to, or, you know, the blood's stopping to coagulating. I can't even, that's probably the way of saying it. So excuse me. Um, but it just drying up and then that being taken off again. Just the agony and the horror of this mockery of the coronation of the king. And so they laid him over to be crucified. So that's the first section that we see. That Jesus' trial and now the mockery. And then we go to the second section. 21 through uh, 32. And we see the crucifixion and then another response. And the first uh, first v- verses of this 21 through 30 is just kind of giving you the historical context, the stage. Because remember, Mark has got things really blurry. He's just focusing on a certain thing, some things that he wants us to know. So he, they, they, the Roman soldiers in verse 21, they compel Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross, or what really is the kind of the cross beam of the cross, because they would already have the big long stake in the ground already. So they, they, Jesus is too weak to carry it at this point. So they have Simon of Cyrene carry it. And it's mentioned here because I think Mark is kind of tipping his hat to the people who have first heard this uh, gospel of Mark. That they knew who Simon of Cyrene is. They know who Alexander and Rufus is. They, I think they're mentioned in the gospel, of, or excuse me, the epistle of the Rome, of, to Romans. And so he's just saying, look, there's people that we know who witnessed what happened to Jesus. And... And they became Christians. And so we're going to just name them here just so that you know this is what happened. But for us, we kind of go, okay, so Simon of Cyrene takes his cross. And they go on and they go to Golgotha, which is the, the place that's just outside of the temple. Or out of the, the Jerusalem wall, excuse me. And they offered him mixed wine to kind of deaden the pain, but he refuses it. He's determined to go. And then we see a scene of the Romans kind of casting lots to get his stuff. And who would get, the, would get his clothes? So yeah, there's Jesus, naked on the cross, and this is happening before them, or happening before him. And it's really, it's supposed to be, at this point, kind of go foggy, because it was at the third hour that he crucified him. There, there's the inscription above him, that Jesus, the king of the Jews, that was, was what his charge was. And he was among two people who were robbers. And these robbers are most likely insurrectionists that were with Barabbas. So Barabbas should be there with him. And these other two guys. And that's, so you get the this, this, this stage, the scene. Jesus is lifted up. He's on the cross. The charge is before him. And this is all happening. 
And then you get the response to his crucifixion. Three hours of this. We're told that from the third hour, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., this is happening. So you have three groups of people mocking Jesus. So you have those in verse 29 passing by, deriding him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, you who destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And then you have the chief priests and scribes mocking to one another. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, or the King of the Jews, come down from the cross that he might see, that we might see and believe. And those even on the cross with him, or crucified with him, reviling him. And see, we know that there's another, another story where the, one of the guys that he's crucified with kind of says, hey, Jesus, you are the guy, right? And, and Jesus kind of promises, you'll be with me in paradise today. But see, Mark doesn't tell that story. It's all blurry. Everything is blurry. It's focused on the fact that Jesus, the king, is on the cross, and all we hear is Jesus speaking and people mocking him. That's it. The coronation of this king is just met with mockery. And that happens for three hours. So we see the, the, the crucifixion, and then the response is more mockery. Then we go to this, the last section here, 33 to 39 that we're going to look at, is the third thing, Jesus' death, and then another response. So when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the entire land until the ninth hour. So roughly 12, or roughly nine, let's see, it's roughly 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., roughly. For three hours, it's completely dark. And I think God is saying, look at this is completely different than any other crucifixion. And we have historical accounts where people from afar kind of noticed darkness over towards Palestine. But that, again, see, that's me, the historian, kind of trying to say, look at this has actually happened. But that's not the point. The point is, this crucifixion is completely different than any other crucifixion. And at the ninth hour, at 3 p.m., Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on the reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Just let's stop there. Just a couple things to notice. I think a lot of us who've kind of grown up in the church, uh, we see Aaron, or uh, Jael, excuse me, we stop, Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we want to immediately kind of go to Psalm 22 because he's quoting that. It's the first line. But I think it distracts us from what actually Jesus had been praying in chapter 14. God, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to go to the cross and have your anger be upon me. Because that's the agony. It's not the cross. It's not any of those things. I think the greatest fear that Jesus had and that caused him to sweat blood and all those kinds of things is the fact that he was going to have to have, for the first time, the anger of the Father placed upon him. He's going to be forsaken by his Father. He knows his lo- the, the perfect love of his Father for all eternity. And at this moment, for you and for me, he's facing separation, darkness between him and his Father. And he's saying, why, oh, why have you forsaken me? And this is to draw people to Psalm 22, I think, in some ways, or at least Mark is doing that, to draw people to Psalm 22. And if you're kind of one of those that are doubters about this, just look at Psalm 22, written 900 plus years before Jesus, and it's amazing how descriptive it is of this scene. 
It, there's so many parallels, we could spend another hour or more talking about it. But just to kind of direct you to that, that this is, it, it really is solidified. That there, Jesus predicted this three times. It was predicted long before Jesus ever existed that this was going to happen. And, and that should just draw us to think, wow, that this has always been God's plan. And it has. But again, people on the crowd, they miss it. They're kind of, this could be mocking. It could be sarcastic. Hey, let's wait. Does he, is he calling Elijah? Because they had this, this, had this thought that Elijah would come and rescue people who were hurt or in distress. So they're kind of like, hey, well, Elijah might come. Let's, let's, hey, let's give him some water. Let's make sure we can stick around. Maybe Elijah will come save him. See, even in that moment, it's not like being generous or kind. It's, it's, it's really even a moment of, it's more mockery. So Jesus, forsaken by the love of his father, and it, left alone, completely left alone, he utters a loud cry and breathes his last. At, at the ninth hour, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cries out, and it's finished. He breathes his last breath. Uh, we know to give us life. It's amazing. And it's also ironically, it's ironically amazing. Ironically, it's also horrific. This moment, the king of the kings, the king of the Jews has come and he's died. And before we go any further, you know, in some ways the, we've, we miss the humility of this as well. Because for so many people, like for Muslims for instance, they, didn't, they refuse they refuse to say that Jesus, the prophet, ever died on the cross because nobody would ever humiliate himself in that way. And Christianity, the cornerstone of Christianity is this, that our God came and he humiliated himself to where nobody would ever think of the torture that was perfected by the Romans hung on the cross for you and for me, for the very people that he was being killed by. I mean, that he was mocked and crucified by the very people he came to serve. And in this section we go, so he breathes his last. And then we have 38 and 39, we have two witnesses of this. So 33 and 39, we see the king entering his kingdom alone and cursed. That he might reveal who he is. And so what, who witnesses this? The temple. The temple, the, the curtain that kept people from, uh, divided from God or kept away, protected them from God's presence. You know, in the temple, God's holiness would be in the Holy of Holies, and there was a curtain there. And this, at this moment, the curtain rips, and there's, no, there's nothing protecting people from God's glory. Because I think Jesus has entered into his throne room. By death, he's entered in, and he's defeated death. He's defeated the division between God and his people. And then what do we have? We have the centurion. So the guy who's in charge of, of all this, the Roman soldier, who stood facing him, said that this way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And this right here is the climax of Mark's gospel. Right here, this centurion, this Gentile, this non-Jew, right after the temple's curtain's been torn, we have the centurion saying, this is the son of God. It's amazing because that's what, exactly what Mark's gospel has been all about. It started with this, the first line. This is the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Everybody knew what the Christ was like, and everybody knew what the Son of, Man was, the Son of God was supposed to be like, but they really didn't get it. And the other three places in the gospel of Mark where someone says this, it's God the Father, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased, and I, whom I love, listen to him. He says that twice. 
at his baptism and transfiguration. Then we have a demonized man. We have a demon saying this is the son of God. But this is the first time we see a person proclaiming that Jesus is the son of God. And it's after the Messiah, the son of man, the son of God has died on the cross. And the temple curtain has been ripped open. And the response to this, the coronation of this king, entering into his, well, having victory, entering into death, is a Gentile saying, this is the Son of God. Just to end, just that Mark ends this chapter with kind of just the women at a distance witnessing, three witnesses. They witness his death, they witness his burial, and then we'll see next week they witness his resurrection. This isn't something that nobody noticed. People witnessed this and believed it. But that kind of gets away from the point because really the big idea again is Mark wants us to see the coronation of the silent king which should elicit a response. And this response is, that's the son of God. That's the son of God. That's that's what we have. You know, you could say that's not the son of God like a lot of people do. But the... But the reality is that it should draw us to go, that, look at a centurion who's, who's, who's only, the only thing he ever claimed was the, to be the son of God was the emperor. And now he's changing everything. His whole world is going upside down. He's, he's recognizing a dead, beaten Jew as the son of God. The world is flipped upside down. And you think, Do, I want to be someone who responds and says, That's the Son of God. And I want to live as though the darkest day, the darkest hour of all the world became the greatest hope for all of us. I want to live in that reality. But so often we, isn't our, like what we sang this morning, so often don't we join the scoffers who mocked him? How often do we live our lives as though the crucifix, the cross, never happened? I mean, daily, this morning, I, I, I lived my life as though it didn't happen. I, didn't, I, I wasn't like Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is in agony about not the torture or anything else, the torture of being separated from his Father. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus on the cross give us? Jesus paid the price. He, gave, he took on all our sins. He took on all the separation, all our hostility, everything that we have against God, and put it on his shoulders and ransomed it. He served us that way. So that we could have all that he has. The love of the Father, the delight of the Father, righteousness, holiness, life, joy, peace. And he gave that to us. And we so often live so easily as if it's not a big deal if we live as though God has forsaken us or, or we live separated from him. How often do we just walk and go about our day as though the cross never happened? Every moment sometimes. It's a constant battle. I just, God, I want to see you clearly. Which is this. The glorious love of the Trinity is clearly revealed on the cross. The father loving his son and, and giving him a bride. And the, bride, and the father saying, you know what, son? You need to go and win them. I love the world so much. I'm going to give you to them that you might win them and clean them to be your bride. And the father and the son goes and does this. And he says, father, I'm doing this for you. Because I want to win you more sons and daughters that they might join us in, and have a relationship with you. This is the, the father's doing this for his son and the son is doing this for his father and we get to be a part of this. And we want our lives to be transformed by this very moment that Jesus died on the cross. 
and that we so can be excited that Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead, and that as he rose from the dead, we get to rise from the dead. And we get to have life. And we don't have to live in darkness, but we can live in light as he came to bring us light. See, that's, that's what Mark wants us to respond to. That's the why. Why is he telling it this way? Why is it muffled? Why is it so focused on the king who only speaks? And he says, I am the king. And he says, God, why have you forsaken me? And all it is is filled with mockery. It's because he wants us to go, that is the son of God. That's what it means for God on high to come and stoop down and humiliate himself to give us life so that we can be raised up and be sons and daughters of God. That's why. It's amazing. And I, I want to be a person, and I want to be, hopefully this will be a church, and I want all of you here to go, yeah, that's my king, that's my God, that's my son, my, my bride, I mean, excuse me, my bridegroom, I wish I could say that right, but I am, his, I am the son of the Father, and I get to be a part of the bride of Christ, and go, that's my life, and I don't want to ever forget it, that what he has is mine, that the Father's delight in the Son is the same of the delight that he has in me and you, and this church. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that you gave us, uh, well, well, Friday, Good Friday, the dark uh, hours of Christ going to the cross, the agony and defeating death, the defeating and, and of, of the hostility and hatred against you. Just thinking about the hostility and the mockery of all the people around Jesus, the, the Jews, the Gentiles, everyone. And Lord, we, I just ask that we wouldn't be among the scoffers, that we wouldn't be among the mockers, but we would be people who be like the centurion, who see the dead naked cross as not as something that's embarrassing, as something that we should reject and ignore, but something that causes us to go, yes, that's the Son of God. And yes, I want to give my life to Him. That's what it means to serve. And I want to be someone who uh, gives my life to the others because Christ has given His life for me. Lord, may we... Uh, just live in the light of that. Lord, we thank you for Easter. We thank you that we get to look forward to next week and celebrating that you have risen indeed. And everything that you've done on the cross is affirmed in the, in the resurrection. Uh, thank you so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.